Hello, and welcome to today's episode of the Pediatric Consult. I'm Dr. Jill Schaffeld, your host for today. I'm a pediatrician in the Cincinnati area, and I'm very excited to be here for today's discussion on hypertension. I'd like to welcome Dr. Mark Mitznefis with the Department of Nephrology at Cincinnati Children's. Today, we will consult um, on hypertension with him. So welcome, Dr. Mitznefis. Thank you very much, Dr. Schaffeld. Let's start by learning a little bit about you. If you could share just a few sentences about your background, maybe how long you've been practicing, specifically maybe even how long you've been practicing at Cincinnati Children's or any special interests sure, you may have. Sure, sure. Yeah, I came to Cincinnati in 1997 uh, for my fellowship. And uh, after uh, completing the fellowship in pediatric nephrology and hypertension, uh, I was offered the position of faculty member. And at the same time, um, uh, Division of Nephrology and Hypertension uh, decided uh, to join forces with Division of Cardiology and create Hypertension Clinic. And uh, one of the cardiologists who was working on that was Dr. Steve Daniels, my uh, mentor for my research. And uh, it was natural for me to join Hypertension Clinic. So I've been working uh, at Cincinnati Children's as a faculty member from 2000. And at the same time, I started uh, being a, a, a hypertension doctor for basically, uh, this is uh, the beginning of Hypertension Clinic at Cincinnati <laughs> Children's Hospital. A lot of wonderful experience sitting in front of me, so we appreciate that. Any special interests beyond hypertension? Yeah, so my uh, re research interest in uh, uh, cardiovascular risk factors in children with chronic kidney disease, and you understand that uh, hypertension is one of those uh, risk factors. Uh, but in addition, uh, I also look at uh, other cardiovascular risk factors like dyslipidemia, obesity, smoking, so basically traditional and CKD, chronic kidney disease-related risk factors. But the biggest part of my uh, research related to hypertension. Wonderful. I love um, listening to the kind of just integrated care that you've already mentioned multiple times, you know, working with cardiology and working together um, in the hypertension clinic, that hypertension clinic itself doesn't just live in one division because it really does affect all those different systems. Right. This is a very unique clinic, actually. Very few uh, clinics, a hypertension clinic around the country has joined forces of cardiology and nephrology. So I think uh, Cincinnati Children's uh, Hospital Medical Center is very fortunate to have this kind of combined program. Absolutely. So today our conversation, as we've been mentioning, is on hypertension. Um, would you mind just sharing a kind of a quick overview of um, the condition and maybe any data off the top of your head on incidents or how often we as general pediatricians may encounter this in our practice? Right. So um, hypertension is a silent disease, as you know, uh, especially in children because uh, uh, many uh, children uh, whom you guys seeing uh, in your practice, uh, basically they don't complain, right? They don't complain of headaches, they don't complain of any other uh, hypertension-related uh, symptoms. So uh, the challenging is to really to find a child with elevated blood pressure, right? The overall incidence and the prevalence of hypertension is quite low. Uh, it's about 1.5%. Uh, of course, you know, that's nothing to compare with asthma or some acute illnesses that you're seeing, for example. But um, 
it's just very important topic, right? And um, I can tell you that uh, typically I see every week about five to seven a new referral from uh, primary pediatricians. Uh, to my clinic, but I'm the only one, right, who's seeing five seven. But there's other providers as well seeing um, a new referral. Sure. So this is uh, relatively uh, small prevalence, but uh, we we have quite significant referral base. Is, is that one point five percent in general? Is that defined as under eighteen? Under what what age range are we looking right. at for that percentage? So for a child who is uh, healthy and uh, didn't have any chronic uh, diseases after birth, uh, as you know, the first time primary care uh, provider will measure blood pressure when child is uh, three years of age, right? So the uh, statistics that I refer is uh, between ages of three to 18. That's a pediatric ages, uh, even though, of course, we see patients who are older than 18 and frequently up to 21 years of age. Sure. Right. But also, 1.5% uh, is a just uh, combined prevalence. And of course, it uh, depends on the risk factors as well. And what I'm referring to is obesity, because children with obesity their prevalence is significantly higher and might reach, uh, depending on the severity of obesity, up to 20%. Wow. For example, uh, class three obesity, it's really, really the problem because hypertension uh, could be up to 20%. And uh, in uh, class one obesity, it could be up to 10%. So you can see the significant wow. difference between 1.5% in children who are not obese versus uh, 10 times more for those who are severely obese. Yeah, that's an interesting, you know, thing is, as I listen to you talk about that, I think about, you know, we measure blood pressures routinely, at least in my practice at every well child check. Um, you know, if there's anything else that we're concerned about, they come in for a chief complaint of dizziness or headaches, of course, right. we'll grab a blood pressure. Um, but we don't always do it. And maybe that's something to think about, especially in children that might you know, um, be obese or children, maybe it's something we should screen or take even a little more often than that once a year. It's an I interesting thought. Right. But I want to add something else because what we see over the last few years during pan after pandemic and during pandemic, first of all, the prevalence of obesity is up. Prevalence of anxiety and depression is up. And I see the differences in uh, prevalence of hypertension because we have much more, uh, many more referral uh, kids who are really, really struggling mentally. Sure. So obesity and mental uh, problem, that's really the main uh, base for referral from you, primary care physician, to my clinic. Absolutely. Well, you just, I mean, that highlighted a very important trend, I think, unfortunately, that we, that we have seen over the past few years. Um, and before we get into really talking about specifics with assessing blood pressure, um, can you speak a little towards just the long-term impact of um, hypertension and why, you know, we know it's important and, you know, thinking about it, I think this is maybe what makes it a little scary, too, is because children don't have many of the outward signs but yet we know that having hypertension for a long time can lead to other very serious complications. 
Right, and uh, actually, I have to refer to uh, two studies. Uh, one of them actually is from Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center. The title is Ship Ahoy, and primary investigator is uh, Dr. Elaine Urbina from Preventive Cardiology, and I've been fortunate to work with her on this project uh, for many years now. And what this study showed that uh, children with elevated blood pressure already have some uh, preclinical symptoms uh, of uh, uh, cardiovascular disease. What I'm talking about is asymptomatic diastolic function problem, asymptomatic systolic function. They might have also left ventricular hypertrophy, which is, uh, uh, you know, increased uh, uh, mass of the left ventricle, right? So uh, we've been tested this, and uh, actually what is important, this uh, problem starts not with uh, blood pressure above 95th percentile. That's how we define hypertension in Mm -hmm. young kids, right? But actually it started early when blood pressure mildly elevated. So I think it's also uh, what I'm talking about, uh, short-term problem related to hypertension, but there's also long-term problems. And that I have to refer to another paper that just was published a few months ago in New England Journal of Medicine. And this paper specifically look at uh, cardiovascular outcome in middle-aged adults who have cardiovascular risk factors during childhood. And they assess, uh, in addition to hypertension, cholesterol level, triglyceride level, obesity, and smoking. And what they found that uh, those uh, patients who had uh, mentioned cardiovascular risk factors during childhood, the prevalence of cardiovascular real outcomes, and I'm talking about myocardial infarction, stroke, was significantly higher than those who did not have uh, this cardiovascular outcome. And each of those risk factors was associated independently with these outcomes. But if you combine them all together, the outcomes were even worse. So I think uh, this study, really the first one, uh, showed uh, how important uh, taking care of cardiovascular risk factors during childhood and be sure that they're not tracking to adulthood. Sure. I think that's very impactful. We think all of us trained as physicians understand longstanding hypertension, cardiovascular risks, but to just have that direct correlation and that direct link to childhood hypertension, I think is is very impactful for us as pediatricians and to realize how important, you know, this just one vital sign we're taking can really be to, you know, risk factors for the rest of their life. So, right. And this great. is... Uh, uh, very important to really identify children with uh, elevated blood pressure. And you're in the uh, front seat for this, right? Because uh, you see kids and uh, then uh, you have to determine what to do with them, right? If they have elevated blood pressure. Sure. And that is a perfect segue into what I'd like to talk about now, which is as um, pediatricians, most of our patients, you know, nurse or medical assistant brings them back, they take their vital signs. Um, Can you share just a little bit about 
the proper way to take a blood pressure. You know, I, everything from, I think we all realize, you know, proper cuff size is important, but are there specific things that we should be doing and we should be training our staff to do to make sure that we're getting a very accurate reading on that blood pressure? Absolutely. This is such an important point. Uh, I can tell you that, uh, unfortunately, many referrals could be avoided if uh, primary care uh, providers' uh, uh, practices uh, really uh, pay attention uh, to how to measure blood pressure. Okay, so the first step, of course, uh, to be sure that a child is uh, in the room, uh, in a quiet room, sitting at least for five minutes without interruption, okay, and then uh, Frequently, uh, we have uh, a problem with a wrong blood pressure cuff size. And as you know, uh, the best and uh, gold standard to assess uh, a cuff size is to measure arm circumference. Uh, that would be very important. Uh, I understand that uh, primary care practices are very busy and probably don't have enough time to do it all the time, but these are, are the recommendations from clinical practice guidelines. Uh, of course, uh, so this is a very, very important uh, part, especially if you're dealing with uh, obese children. Frequently, primary care um, practices don't have thigh cuff that we use for very obese kids, right? And yes. large adult cuff may be not big enough cuff. And this is actually one of the most common uh, problem with artificially high blood pressure because of wrong blood pressure cuff. So this is very important. But uh, also very important is the position of a child, right? All normative values are for sitting blood pressure. So it's very important. The legs should be supported, back should be supported, arms should be on the level of the heart. And then, so this is all uh, very small practical uh, things that really affect blood pressure because blood pressure is very sensitive, okay? And then in, you have to do one blood pressure measurement, wait for 30 seconds to one minute, and then take the second blood pressure on the same arm on in the same position. And only after that, you can make intelligent decision about what's really blood pressure is in this kid. I'm getting a visual in my mind as you're telling, you know, this is the position they should be in. And I'm thinking pretty much every patient that comes back to our office is in the wrong position. <laughs> They're sitting on the side of the bed. Their feet are not on the ground. <laughs> their heart, or, yeah. or their, I'm sorry, their arms are definitely not at heart level and their back's not supported because they're sitting on the side of the, you know, bedside table or the, um, the you know, bed that we examine them on. So... All of those things are, are not correct, but very important, you know, when we do get that elevated reading to say, you know what, let's do these things, give it a few minutes, and take that second reading, right? Right. right. So. But I also think that if you found elevated blood pressure, you also have to think, oh, what kind of equipment did I use? Sure. Was it manual equipment or it was a cinematic device, digital device, right? The recommendations are very clear. If the first measurement was done by a cinematic device and it's elevated, then you have to repeat it manually, right? However, you know, some practices might have problem having manual equipment. So there is some recommendation uh, what to do if the first uh, reading with a cinematic device elevated. Actually, the recommendations are very clear. You have to do second measurement and then third measurement and then 
uh, get away from the first measurement and calculate average of the second and third measurements okay. with a telemetric device if there is a problem with manual equipment. Oh, interesting. Okay. I had no idea. I do remember, it's funny, thinking back even into my residency here at Cincinnati Children's, and whenever I would get that page, so-and-so's blood pressure is high, the first thing I would say is, was that a manual cough or an automatic? Can you please take it manually? So um, I didn't realize, though, if you don't have the equipment to do such that you should take the average, which I guess does make sense. Yeah, the first uh, the first measurement with uh, digital device frequently overestimates the real blood pressure. Sure. That so that's sense. why the recommendations repeated uh, second time and ideally the third time. Great. Is there any use since we're talking about specific ways to take a blood pressure? Um, obviously, I think we all, as general pediatricians, are going to know the big as I start to say this, who this would be most concerned and what age group, but any use as beyond infancy for four extremity blood pressures? Oh, that's an uh, interesting uh, question. Um, you know, there was a paper published, uh, I think last year uh, in Journal of Pediatrics, uh, looking at adherence to clinical practice guidelines on measurement of blood pressure, right? And apparently uh, not Every, and that was a study of more than 50 primary care practices. And the adherence to measurement upper and lower extremities was uh, really very low, very low. But definitely uh, uh, you need to do that, especially if the first blood pressure is elevated or average blood pressure in the upper extremities is elevated, right? Okay. You have to do that, especially if it's stage two hypertension. However, if there is a problem with uh, equipment, because if you deal with overweight kids, even a thigh cuff sometimes would be not uh, large enough. Wow. So really, really important to measure femoral pulses, okay? So this really kind of uh, substitution for a measurement of lower extremities blood pressure. Yes. And you mentioned stage two hypertension. Can you discuss a little bit about what constitutes stage one versus stage two? Great. So um, a clinical practice guidelines been published in 2017 in September in pediatrics. By the way, this is excellent source for um, any providers, including general pediatrician and subspecialist to uh, look uh, and learn about uh, management of hypertension in children. So uh, the uh, first of all, it's divided in two age groups, less than 13 and uh, 13 and older. And I will just right away say that for those who are older, 13 and older, the uh, cutoff points for uh, normal, elevated, and uh, hypertension are the same as for adults. And of course, for younger kids, we are based uh, the uh, classification based on the percentiles. So elevated blood pressure is between 90 and 95th percentile. Stage one hypertension between 95th percentile plus 12 millimeter, 12 points, and stage two above uh, 12 points. And for 13 and older, normal blood pressure below 120 over 80. Elevated blood pressure is between 120 to 130 over 80. Stage one is 130 to 140 over 80 to 90, and stage two hypertension above 140 over 90. So that's a classification that we are working. And interestingly enough that this new classification showed, uh, comparing to previous one that was in 2004, actually 
better correlate with target organ damage that I mentioned before, uh, like left ventricular hypertrophy, for example. Yeah. So if in the office I see a patient um, that, say, at this point, just blood pressure is taken, I do everything I should in terms of making sure it's a manual pressure, um, blood pressure that's taking, making sure the cuff size is okay, the child is in the correct position. So all of those factors check out all right, but it, that blood pressure remains in that stage one. When is the best time or how long should I follow that up? Is that something that you say, you know, see back in four weeks, see back in six weeks, and how many of those measurements do I need in, say, a stage one or a stage two um, range to truly say, okay, this is definitely hypertension, this is definitely a problem. Right, when you confirm that child has elevated blood pressure or stage one and stage two, there's specific guidance on uh, the follow-up that you can find in uh, clinical practice guidelines. But uh, uh, just to summarize, for those who have mildly elevated blood pressure, not hypertension, but mildly elevated, the uh, guidelines would say, uh, bring them back within six months, after six months of follow-up. For those who have stage one hypertension, ideally you have to bring them within first months uh, and repeat it. Uh, I typically would recommend, uh, you know, to bring them, uh, in within two weeks, and then, uh, by the way, to really, really diagnose patient with hypertension, you need three separate visits, right? Mm -hmm. So if you see them on the first visit and high blood pressure, bring them second, and then bring them for the third time. And uh, uh, if uh, during all these three visits, blood pressure is elevated, here it is. Uh, you diagnose them with hypertension. For stage two hypertension, you have to be more aggressive. Right, in the follow-up, definitely um, uh, you can refer patient right away to subspecialist or bring them within first uh, week and you have also to do some screening to find the secondary hypertension. And uh, we can talk about, you know, the second, what uh, ideally, right, why the follow-up is different for those who have suggested, uh, suspected uh, secondary hypertension versus primary hypertension. I think this is a perfect time to talk about that. So what workup is appropriate in that situation? Um, what you know, lab work do you typically recommend as your initial lab work for hypertension? Um, and then even if you wanna speak a little bit towards at what point is a renal ultrasound appropriate in diagnosis? Right, uh, so uh, when um, child is referred to my clinic, even before uh, we see this uh, patient, we already ordered some screening tests, right? Of course, uh, ideally, if you feel comfortable as a primary pediatrician, you can definitely do it in your practice. But uh, typically, we check uh, kidney function. We look at ty um, TSH to be sure that there is no problem with thyroid, right? Uh, we also look at urine analysis, right? And because uh, most of the kids that uh, are referred uh, have obesity, we also look not just on uh, factors that might be associated with hypertension, but we also look at some other cardiovascular risk factors. Uh, typically, we check uh, lipid profile 
to know their cholesterol. We check also hemoglobin A1C to be sure that they don't have risk for diabetes, as well as uh, liver uh, enzymes, because many of these kids might have fatty liver. So that's a screening test that uh, recommended uh, by practic uh, guideline, practical guidelines as well uh, that what we uh, utilize in our clinic uh, here in Cincinnati. As far as kidney ultrasound, it's actually excellent question because you remember I referred you to Journal of Pediatrics on adherence to guidelines. And uh, the current recommendation to do um, to do kidney ultrasound if there is a confirmed stage one hypertension. Uh, honestly, I don't agree with these uh, guidelines. And uh, the adherence, by the way, on this paper that I refer was almost zero because primary care physicians don't do that. And I think it's appropriate not to do that. Why? Because majority of these patients have some other risk factors, right? By physical exam and by history, you probably will eliminate kidney disease in majority of cases, 80%. So, the, you know, doing kidney ultrasound, uh, you really have a really a good suspicion uh, for kidney disease, okay? So, uh, I... While, uh, you know, recommendations are recommendations, guidelines are guidelines, it's not 100% you have to follow. So if you're concerned about kidney disease, sure, you can order. But in majority of cases, I would probably skip it. I love to hear that because I'm thinking that in my 13 plus years, I don't think I've ever ordered a renal ultrasound on a child that had hypertension in my office, so that makes me feel a little bit better. Yeah, that's confirmed. <laughs> that's confirmed my notion as well. <laughs> well, good. Um, you know, but it, it does make sense, as you said, and I think it is a very good point. If you are proceeding as a general pediatrician with some of those general screening labs before referral, and maybe there is a bump in the creatinine or there is something to indicate in the history that there may be something with kidney disease or, you know, there's an excess of protein in the urine, you know, something else that maybe triggers you to be a little more suspicious that it is appropriate in that case, but yeah. in many cases, it's not. Uh, yeah, so. I just want to confirm, um, uh, clarify something that uh, I'm referring to mild hypertension. Of course, if you have a child without any other risk factors, for example, no obesity, right? Uh, and the child is uh, lean, but have stage two hypertension, you might be probably, you might uh, order kidney ultrasound even without you know, sending kids to a subspecialist because we do that. If I can find any risk factors, uh, you know, for primary hypertension, I have to assess secondary hypertension, right? And uh, sure. the most important cause of secondary hypertension is kidney disease. So kidney ultrasounds is right there. Absolutely. You know, one of the things that if we did not practice um, at Cincinnati Children's or as a general pediatrician, if I did not have Cincinnati Children's so close, because we do have a variety of listeners and trying to just think of everyone out there if they maybe are not in the general Cincinnati area, and they don't have the luxury of a hypertension clinic that is multidisciplinary with cardiology and nephrology, are there any tips or tricks that you can give those pediatricians on when hypertension should be referred to cardiology versus when to nephrology? And that's very hard because I feel like that's really splitting hairs asking you that question, but... Is there any patients that you can think just clear-cut should go to one specialty versus the other? Right. Of course, if you have child with uh, heart palpitations or cardiac murmur, 
or some arrhythmias and hypertension, clearly you have to refer this to cardiologist, right? But, uh, you know, uh, the rest can be go to both, right? Nephrology and cardiology, we see them all. But uh, also, um, at least uh, from experience from Cincinnati Children's Hypertension Clinic, we decided that, that uh, uh, nephrology will see all kids with age less than seven. And the reason for this is because they're most likely to have um, secondary hypertension, okay? And secondary hypertension, of course, uh, I'm not talking about correctation of the aorta or all problem that uh, symptoms that I described before. It's mostly related not to heart problems. So that's why uh, the decision was for young kids, uh, nephrology will take care of this. So uh, that's probably uh, good for uh, primary care physicians as well, follow the same uh, pattern. I absolutely didn't know that. So I think that was great information to share. Um, any... I guess I'm thankful as I ask this question that this is not something that I see often, but um, any need or I guess what criteria would or should push uh, a general pediatrician to refer a patient to the emergency room? I'd say it's pretty um, few and far between that we would ever need right. to do that, which is wonderful. Yeah, um, I think uh, we are talking about red flags basically, right? And uh, severe headache with hypertension, blur vision. Absolutely, you have to refer it. Uh, heart palpitation that uh, you think that there is gonna be very difficult to control, uh, you know, you have to refer them probably to emergency room. Uh, you know, uh, while we are talking about stage two hypertension, uh, you have to be careful to send them all. You don't need to send every patient with stage two hypertension to emergency room, however, if a child has so-called urgent hypertension or um, emergent hypertension, right, uh, you might have uh, send them right away. And what I'm talking, you know, right now, at least the definition of urgent hypertension is you take stage uh, one hypertension plus 30 millimeters above. So that's quite higher than 12 millimeters when you define stage two hypertension, right? Sure. So if you have really, really very high uh, number for blood pressure. Uh, even child might be not symptomatic, but I think um, you might send uh, this kid to emergency room as well, just for screening evaluation, because it may be done much faster than uh, in primary care office. And, and my thought on that is maybe even at least reach out to the specialist too, because I do feel like we are blessed and lucky that Cincinnati Children's is in our backyard, but oftentimes, you know, when we reach out to the specialists, it's, oh, we'll see them today. We'll see them in the next 24 hours, which is wonderful. Yeah. Um, but I, I think that's a great point. I had never heard that classification of emergent or urgent hypertension being 30 millimeters above. So right. Right. And I think, uh, you know, we're 24 seven uh, on call. Uh, you know, you can use priority link, of course, uh, and, uh, one of the, typically it, it's a nephrology um, um, a provider will answer your questions. And, you know, if you're not certain, of course, uh, just uh, give us a call and uh, we will make decision together. Great. I appreciate that. So heading into the assessment um, a little bit more, which I know we touched on before, um, you had mentioned um, 
femoral readings, femoral pulses, and kind of assessing that. Can you share a little bit more about that? Yeah. So this is really very rare uh, condition. We're talking about uh, why we're doing femoral pulses, right? We're because we want to rule out uh, coarctation of the aorta. Yes, I understand that this is a very rare disease. However, uh, unfortunately, a uh, few cases per year we are receiving. For example, uh, recently I saw a 17-year-old boy who was referred by a pediatrician uh, for high blood pressure, right? And uh, unfortunately, lower blood pressure extremities wasn't measured in this particular case, right? So when we see that patients, and you know, in nephrology, uh, in the hypertension clinic, actually, um, when we see patient for the first time, we measure blood pressure in upper and lower extremities because we already assume the child has high blood pressure that uh, was determined um, uh, during uh, primary care visits, right? And uh, one of my nurses uh, just came back from the room and said, I can't uh, find lower extremities blood pressure. Wow. And when you see that, right, I said uh, to my nurse, by the way, uh, I'm talking about Debbie Parrott, who's been with me for the last 20 years. And, uh, you know, she's such an expert. In the That's what I was thinking. Someone who does this all the time. Exactly. So we have a that. good group of trained nurses. And... Uh, she said basically, well, I can't hear, you know, no lower extremities, blood pressure at all. I mean, she already made a diagnosis, right? So my goal was to come to the room, listen carefully to the heart, and I see classical uh, heart sounds, right? When you see the murmur that uh, you can uh, refer to the back, um, um, and uh, the next step was to call, uh, to call, uh, cardiology, right? Mm -hmm. uh, we're fortunate because our clinic on the same floor, it's a C4, which is a cardiology floor. Sure. So right away, this kid had echocardiography and was diagnosed with quite severe uh, coarctation of the water. So I just want to emphasize one more time that really, really good history and physical exam, uh, including femoral pulses, if you are not able to measure blood pressure in the lower extremities, very, very important because it really can affect child uh, life. You know, we can wait for 17 years. It's probably not a good way to do it. This child probably could be diagnosed when he was at least three years of age, right, sure. with this disease. So this is kind of a negative example, but I also have some good positive examples, <laughs> right, when we talk about not just assessment, but management, but we can, um, sure. you know, discuss it later. I think that's a great example. We all, as general pediatricians, learn the pediatric exam from infancy, but I'll be honest, I can't tell you how many times I check femoral pulses, you know, once they get out of infancy stage. And to just realize and remember how important that may be in the diagnosis, I think is a great reminder. Right, and just keep in mind that you need to do it in the case if blood pressure is high on the upper extremities, right? Sure. If blood pressure is normal, you probably don't need to do that. Yes, absolutely. And now, if you would like to, we can discuss a little bit about management. Um, I think a lot of this from a general pediatric standpoint is after the referral takes place. Uh, but I think it's good for us to know some basic management and when that um, would come into play. And um, when do you look at treating and what do you first treat with? Because some of these, even if they do start seeing you, they will be still visiting us and we should know 
what medicines they're on, are there any side effects we need to watch for, that sort of thing. Right, right. As so, well as lifestyle changes. So uh, management is, uh, seems to be simple, right? You start with uh, lifestyle modification with those uh, uh, kids who have uh, stage one hypertension or elevated blood pressure. Sounds simple, right? And um, a lifestyle modification, I'm sure that every primary care practice uh, will talk about it, right? including diet and exercises. And in a hypertension clinic, we have actually two dietitians who will uh, have appointment with uh, patients and discuss everything. And we also have exercise physiologists if we need to talk about uh, exercise and what could be done for these particular patients. It sounds easy, uh, but you probably can ask uh, the question, how successful are you in your practice uh, with lifestyle modification, right? Sure. And I will be very honest, uh, only 10 to 15% uh, after all vigorous, vigorous conversation about what needs to be done uh, will have a success. And that brings me to, you know, my recent case, I see a patient who was actually admitted to the hospital with very high blood pressure, like 180 over 100, and was started on blood pressure medication, very severely obese child. Uh, probably his blood pressure was triggered by... Uh, migraine, which also yeah. frequently happened in children who are obese, mm -hmm. right? And then I see this patient after discharge of the hospital, uh, and uh, we discuss um, uh, what needs to be done, right? Yes, he's on blood pressure medication on uh, ACE inhibitor, but that's not the point what I want to uh, emphasize. You know, simple discussion, and uh, I see him in uh, one month after, the first appointment, he already lost 10 pounds. Wow. And now, after six months of uh, follow-up, uh, he came and he lost total over 70 pounds. Wow. Right? And now his blood pressure is completely normal. So I'm just saying, hey, uh, you're probably going to stop this medication very soon. Let's wait for another six months and uh, let's see what happens. But uh, so there's some successes. Wonderful success there's story. some I successes, unfortunately, not frequently. Yeah, unfortunately definitely. Frequently. So. Well, that um, was wonderful, and I think great information for pediatricians to share. Um, and by the way, you understand, this is just an example that showed that this uh, intervention works if you follow it, right? Absolutely. And the uh, recommendation for diet, if we want to discuss it a little bit farther, definitely for many kids, uh, we prefer DASH diet which stands for Dietary Approach to Stop Hypertension, right? Uh, but I'll just uh, come back to this case, right? I said, tell me, tell me, why do you think that you're so successful in weight loss? His only sing single answer was portion control. Wow. Portion control. So this is probably the most important, okay? We can talk about, oh, yes, you have... Uh, whole bread versus, oh, you have more vegetables or more fruit. But if you more don't have effort. portion control, probably the success would be minimal. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. You mentioned the DASH diet, which I'm not super familiar with. Is there um, a resource that you can direct us towards? To yes, absolutely. Actually, if you diet? just type DASH diet, it's, <laughs> it's right there. But uh, uh, to summarize, uh, this is a balanced diet. This is not starving diet, of course. Uh, but it includes uh, many portions of uh, fruits and vegetables, low salt, high potassium, 
and high fibers. So that's uh, the diet, right? The if you need some uh, information that should be on website and uh, definitely uh, you can always call to uh, hypertension clinic and we would be happy to provide with handouts on a DASH diet. And other dietary information, for example, related to low salt, uh, right, diet. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, that is perfect. Um, if there's anything else you would like to share with us, um, but you've, your expertise has been wonderful, and I think the general pediatricians will very much appreciate this. Yeah, so the, uh, frequently um, I ask my general pediatrician, uh, can I start blood pressure medications? And when do I need to start blood pressure medications, right? And I said, if you feel comfortable, please do. Right, it's um, our recommendation for first line of antihypertensive medication. There are three classes of medication. One is ACE inhibitors and ARBs, right? And uh, you know, you don't need to use uh, or to choose between many of them. Just choose medication that you're really comfortable with. In my clinic, I typically use for younger kids enalapril and for older kids uh, lisinopril. And as far as ARBs, it's losartan. Right. The second class is uh, long-acting calcium channel blockers, and there's also uh, amlodipine is a very good medication, right? And the third class of the first-line therapy is thiazide diuretic, hydrochlorothiazide. That's a medication that we frequently use. I also want to emphasize that frequently one medication might not work. So there is a definitely combination of pills, uh, which uh, is preferable. It's one pill with two drugs. It can be ACE and hydrochlorothiazide, and it could be calcium channel blocker and diuretics, right? So uh, that's uh, also we frequently utilize uh, this combination to treat kids. But again, uh, uh, that's the three classes of antihypertensive medication. So if you feel comfortable, please do. Um, lately, because of a very significant prevalence of anxiety and kids come with heart palpitations, for example, uh, and increased heart rate. I think uh, one of the uh, reasons for them to have high blood pressure is a lot of stress. A lot of stress will lead to increased sympathetic activity, which will increase to heart rate. And that's why I recently started using more beta blockers, even yeah. though beta blockers is uh, are not uh, the first-line therapy, but kids respond very well. It's a very Absolutely. good blood pressure medication. You always have to balance between Benefits and side sure. effects, right? So for have to that be... subset of patients, it makes perfect sense exactly, with the anxiety right. on top of it. Exactly. Yeah. So, and uh, you can use uh, different uh, beta blockers, right? Uh, I prefer right now metoprolol, and it can come as a short-acting or long-acting. For example, if I see a kid who has uh, uh, high uh, heart rate during the daytime, but uh, his... Uh, you know, he sleeps and his blood pressure is good. By the way, we haven't talked about ambulatory blood pressure uh, monitoring, which is really, really uh, one of the very important part of my assessment in hypertension clinic. But what I'm saying, if blood pressure at night is normal and uh, he only has uh, high blood pressure during the day, I use short-acting uh, beta blocker, for example, right? Yes, definitely. Thank you for sharing that. That's another... You know, I'm, I'm used to not managing um, with starting medications, but there might be many pediatricians out there that are listening that don't have the luxury of having a hypertension clinic to refer to. And um, that's wonderful information, I think, to share for them as well. 
Yeah, and just a few words about ambulatory blood pressure monitoring, because now uh, actually you can um, uh, order it on EPIC uh, if you are a provider related to Cincinnati Children's Hospital. Uh, and uh, one of our nurses, either in nephrology or in cardiology, will contact primary care physician and we will schedule patient for our dedicated uh, ABPM clinic that uh, run by nephrology group. Great. That's wonderful. Thank you. Um, well, I guess we will wrap up. I appreciate all your time today and all your expertise. And it was um, very enjoyable chatting with you and you sharing all your knowledge with us. So thank you so much. Thank you for inviting. And I just also wanted to share a mention that CME credit will be available and will be linked on the um, bottom of the podcast page, as well as uh, many of the studies we referenced here, information on the DASH diet and the clinical guidelines that were referenced.